Hi and welcome to uh, this week's episode. This week we're talking about fermented foods, which we mentioned in the last podcast. Good afternoon, Susan. Good afternoon, Paul. So, um, fermented foods, new or old school, fad or fact? We got interested in fermented foods during our trip to the UK uh, and Europe last year. We had a couple of lunches at a little cafe called the Veg Box Cafe in Canterbury. Uh, their specialisations in uh, vegan and vegetarian fare, uh, but particularly fermented foods, which was not necessarily something we'd come across before. But it's not new, is it? No, and I think the the amazing thing about the cafe in itself is that the owner uses it to run classes as well. Mm-hmm. Um, if we could have stayed around long enough to have partaken in one of the classes, I think it would have been a lot of fun because he's quite a character. Yes, Adam. Yes, he is quite a character. Um, so what are fermented foods? So it's nothing new. So before the days of refrigeration, which, of course, refrigeration has a lot to answer for because of CFCs and uh, and the hole in the ozone layer back in the uh, the pre-2000s. Um, but before there was refrigeration, it, there was a real challenge to keep food fresh uh, or to keep it, uh, to preserve it, to stop it from going rotten. Um, and uh, one of the earliest methods that were, was ever found was fermentation, um, using salt uh, and sugar to um, to either preserve or to add and enhance flavours of foods. And I believe that um, fermented foods goes back to um, the Egyptian times. Um, certainly so, okay, so that would be like on the ships where they, like in Captain Cook's day where they used to preserve meats. stuff in salt. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. okay. Well, wine's a fermented food. So, you know, the, the um, wine from the Roman times has been found um, preserved. Okay, um, so that's so. why it's so good for you. <laughs> uh, partially. Or after you've had it, you <laughs> think you just look good. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yes, I feel good. It's not uh, just a Western thing either, of course. Uh-huh. Um, the Chinese and the Japanese are renowned for their fermented um, foods and some of the earliest uh, uh, and probably the most common fermented foods would be miso and soy. Oh, yeah. So soy sauce and miso soup. They're both fermented foods. They, they in some cases, take, uh, years to ferment, particularly soy. Okay, and uh, you're talking about two and miso, two um, countries where the people seem to have quite long lives as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that goes down to fermented food. Okay, but, but another course of uh, other forms of fermented food would be yogurt. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yep. Um, beer is a fermented beverage. Mm-hmm. Um, wine, because they. They have an enzyme. They have enzymes that that, uh, that feed on the sugar and and convert it to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also serves to to, to uh, preserve the, the product as well. So so yes. So um, so why why do you think um, fermented foods have become popular again or beginning to become popular again? Do you think it's a, re- a rejection of uh, modern farming and and uh, return to older ways, or people are more health conscious? Or I think the gut health 
um, term came around, I think we first, or I first heard about it mm. maybe five or six years ago, mm-hmm. maybe even a bit longer than that. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there, there's the whole overuse of antibiotics and people taking probiotics after they've done a course of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. Um, so I suppose there's that story of um, just maintaining a decent um, food intake rather than having to go and buy tablets and take them instead yeah. has possibly done it as well. But mm-hmm. I know um, I've read a lot over the last couple of years where people are talking about gut health and how mm-hmm. important it is just to your general well-being. Yeah, yeah. Plus tablets and that don't taste deli- delicious, so... Whereas no. fermented foods are, are great. Yeah, uh, well, why taste. wouldn't? Yeah, why wouldn't you just incorporate something into your everyday diet mm. if it was going to be doing you some good? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I've got a list of uh, some of the examples of things, that, and I've mentioned a lot of them. Of course, sauerkraut is probably the one that most people would stumble upon first. Um, sauerkraut is the easiest and the most common. Anyone who's had a Reuben's sandwich has had sauerkraut. At, uh, I bet there's a lot of people haven't had sauerkraut, yeah, though. I, I think when I was growing up, it was something that the funny European kids had on yeah. their sandwiches. Yeah, true. Yeah. Um, but certainly mm-hmm. um, we discovered it, I think, or maybe tasted it first, having Reuben's yeah. at that fabulous cafe in Sydney. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, so the uh, Korean equivalent of sauerkraut is kimchi, mm-hmm. um, the difference being that it's, whilst they're both cabbage-based, uh, the kimchi has lots of chilli and stuff in it. Um, some of the other types of uh, fermented foods. Kefir was one that we'd not come across. And people were talking about milk kefir, which is an Indian-Persian type of beverage. But kind of like a runny yogurt, It's like isn't a runny it? yogurt, yes, yeah. yeah. We found that water kefir, which is not as well known, um, has actually been a pretty much become a staple for us in terms of not only consuming but also using it to propagate other foods, like, for example... Uh, the fermented cheese, the cashew cheese that we use, uses mm-hmm. kefir water to start the, the fermentation process. I think probably the water kefir as opposed to the um, milk kefir as well is that a lot of people are trying to steer away from either dairy mm-hmm. in their diet or when you're an adult, you don't really want a milky-based drink throughout the day. No. Where, where I think the water kefir makes it a much more palatable and interesting drink yeah. um, that doesn't have all of the calories that, say, soft drink has. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Plus it's a lot more, it's a lot more flexible in terms of the fact that you can flavour it. If you do a second ferment on it, then it goes fizzy, um, whereas milk kefir just tends to be milk kefir. It's, I mean, sure, you can flavour it, but it's just like flavoured yoghurt, um, whereas... Water kefir, there's a lot you can do with it. Very flexible kind of product. Because one we haven't spoken about, which is another fermented product, kombucha, which is very popular at the moment and was about 30 <laughs> years ago. Um, it, it seems to go through cyclical fads. I think I do remember the group of people that introduced us to kombucha which would have been, yeah, yeah maybe 20 to 25 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 
because there was no internet then, yeah. we didn't know how to research it. And all it was was this creepy thing in a bucket that just <laughs> kept growing. Yeah. And I remember being scared of it. it yes. And when you're scared of something, you don't really want to drink the liquid that comes off it. No. Whereas now we've been able to research so easily yeah. um, that it does – it. it gives you the opportunity to find out all of the benefits of it yes. and other things that you can do with it. For sure, and there's some superb resources on YouTube, um, people who've been there, done it, and give you tips and tricks and, and all age groups too. Um, so, yes, I personally I find kombucha, I know you do too, find it a bit um, uh, bland compared to kefir. It, it, it doesn't have the It doesn't uh, punch you in the face. No, it doesn't have the personality. <laughs> For those that don't know, you have to do the kombucha in um, a cold tea, black black tea or green tea. You can do either. Yeah. Or most place, most uh, people recommend a, a, a combination of black and green. Yeah, but um, you still get that tea, tea. flavour yeah. coming through. It's a bit thin. So, yeah, so it's more like having a glass of iced tea mm. that perhaps is a little bit good for you, yeah. whereas the kefir is like a punch in the face. It's, it's more like a glass of wine, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, and you know it's doing you good, and especially where we have it with turmeric and ginger in it, it, it just feels like health in a glass. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's certainly uh, certainly opened our eyes to to what you you know to uh, um, a different type of beverage for sure. Yeah, 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 it's really good and and so variable. I mean, there's so many different things you can do with it, and so many different flavors you can um, you you can extract from it, so to speak. I mean, which I've tried it with molasses and with honey, and combinations of molasses and honey, and on the second ferment, ginger and turmeric and peach and Nectarine and banana and apple and blueberry and, and yeah, having uh, just come through the stone fruit season here, it's yeah. it's been a great opportunity to put all those different stone fruits yes, yeah. into it. Yeah, the wine and uh, the um, the peach and the nectarine for sure. Yeah, a, yeah, a different a different thing altogether. So um, yes, it's uh, I certainly prefer it fizzy. I have to say, um, although we did have a bit of an accident the other night with. Uh, <laughs> Two bottles exploded, which, um, yeah, I never thought that would happen, but uh, it did. So, and they were only uh, a day and a half into their second ferment. So, uh, that was a bit of a surprise. And I think that's not the only accident that you've had to clean up so far. And I think it's worth people knowing that mm. when you're doing this sort of thing, you really do have to keep an yeah. eye on it. Yeah. It's got a life of its own. It's a yeah. living organism and yeah. it's it's going to do something. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, and the only one, the other one was the the cashew cheese where the oil pushed out of the jar. Uh -huh. That's the only other accident. Okay. I've had. So these foods are not particularly difficult to uh, to make, um, and there's plenty of recipes on the. Uh, we'll we'll give you some lists of people to go and look at. So some of the, the these things are not particularly difficult to make. Uh, we'll go through a couple of them, but we'll, at the end of the uh, of the podcast, we'll we'll give you some links to uh, YouTube resources that give you the visuals as well as the uh, the instructions about how to make some of this stuff so you don't need much to get started you just need well let's talk about sauerkraut because it's the first one that most people try so for every kilo of cabbage you use you use about two tablespoons of salt i think it is um i got a small bucket that i could crush it into 
Um, and then we've got some ball mason jars so we can ferment them. And that really is about all you need uh, for sauerkraut. You don't need water or anything. You just put the salt, you shred up the cabbage, you put in the salt, you mash it together until the, the salt leaches the moisture out of the cabbage. When you've got it to a, uh, a, a texture that you want, that you think you can eat, um, then essentially all you do is you stuff it into the ball mason jar and uh, top it up with water because um, the secret to fermented foods is it's anaerobic uh, fermentation. So in other words, the air can't get at it. Um, and because the air can't get in it, the uh, uh, bacteria get an opportunity to um, propagate in in the product. So um, what, you just literally cover and you cover the it, cover it the cabbage with okay. either, and then you seal it off either with a glass weight or a cabbage leaf uh, that you're not using, just to seal it in. Make sure that the water's tapped, topped up, um, and then three weeks later, three to four weeks later, you've got sauerkraut. It's literally as simple as that. So, look, I'm not going to give you any recipes on on the podcast, but as I say, we will give you some links to some resources that you can go and check out the YouTube videos and that. But it really is. It's not complex. It's not difficult. You don't need a whole lot of things to get started. And sauerkraut is the one to 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 really start with because it's it's so simple. With um, something like water kefir, it is literally you buy some water kefir grains. You get them on eBay for six or eight dollars for three or four teaspoons worth, but that's enough to get you started. And then it's literally like 50 grams of sugar per liter of water and a couple of teaspoons of molasses. And you put it into a one liter jar, cap off. I usually put uh, you know, cheesecloth on top of the jar to stop stuff from getting in there because you know, fruit flies don't like the sugar. Because essentially it's sugar water. And then three or four, three days later, you've, you've got water kefir, which you can then strain off start up another batch and, and put your product into smaller glass jars with some fruit, seal them off so they get some carbon dioxide. They go bubbly, basically. Um, and that's all there is to it. You stick it in the refrigerator after you've after another two or three days and you've got flavoured kefir. So um, not difficult uh, at all. So you um, can just keep reusing the grains? Keep reusing the grains. You strain them off with a sieve and just... Go the ne- go again. In okay. fact, we were producing so much water kefir that uh, I, I was ending up having to throw some of it away because uh, it, it is literally a two or three day turnaround. And if you're making, I'm making three liters at a time, so uh, we, we can't get through three liters every three or four days. It's uh, it's a lot to get through. So, so and do the uh, grains multiply? Um, yeah, they do because it's a living organism. So uh, so, you, but not. Hugely, I mean, you don't end up with. I started with three teaspoons worth. I've probably got twelve teaspoons worth now. Okay. Um, after it's probably th- nearly three months, um, so you get about a teaspoon's worth of extra every month. Okay. Roughly, I guess. And they just every look month. like couscous. They're not as scary as the no. scoby that you put into your kombucha. No, that's right. Well, they're, I guess they're. Are they a SCOBY? I, probably not, but you know, a SCOBY is S-C-O-B-Y, which is a symbiotic co- colony of yeast and bacteria, or bacteria and yeast, S-C-O-B-Y. So that's not like kombucha where you get like a mushroomy kind of thing, gross-looking booger kind of looking thing <laughs> at the top, top of your jar. 
But I mean, that, that's probably the easiest of the two to make, but only because the kefir here is so prolific that you, you, you really have to do it a couple of times a week, whereas with the kombucha, you, it takes you, you know, and half an hour or something to make it, and then it just sits and ferments for two weeks. So it, 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 you don't turn it around so fast. So the kefir is a little bit more work in that respect, but a lot more flexible. I certainly wouldn't put, be putting kombucha into into the cashew cheese that we make, and I'll talk about that in a minute. Or well, you can talk about that in a minute if you like. But the kefir, you know, the pre-flavored kefir, it's quite prolific and quite uh, dynamic in terms of what it what it creates. So let's talk about cheese made with cashews. I mean that that was that was a recipe you came across. I don't even know where I first heard of it, but I had heard that a lot of vegans like to make cheese out of cashews and it seemed like a fairly easy product to get hold of and again because of the internet you can just google a recipe mm. and it was literally cashews some uh, you have to soak them so that you can blend them down to a pulp um i suppose it, what it ends up looking like is um, almost like a creamier colored ricotta cheese, whereas mm -hmm. ricotta is very white. Mm. This is more a cashew color, but um, it's it's just fabulous. It's, yeah. yeah, it's just it seems to me it's more like um, what's the chickpea thing? Hummus. Hummus. Uh, hummus. Yeah, it's got more of a hummus kind of yeah, texture. Yeah, probably. But it tastes like cheddar. It's, yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, so I mean, look up on the internet for a recipe for that, but. You're literally talking about three cups of cashews, some salt. Uh, you soak, soak the cashews for four, four hours or more. We do it overnight, but four hours will do it. Um, it's three, uh, a third of a cup of kefir water. And, yeah, you just... And 48... Oh, top it up with oil. oil. As you said, it's anaerobic, so... You don't want anything getting into it. Yeah. Um, but 48 hours later and it's ready. Yeah, you've got this great tasting product that's dairy-free. And, yeah, cashews aren't that cheap, but uh, but it's a healthy alternative to dairy fat. So, And I think I've seen some health benefits from reducing my... my intake of uh, cheese. My dairy intake. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I suppose that... Question might might be being asked is you know, well you talk about a lot of salt you talk about a lot of sugar there seems to be a lot of evidence to say that both salt and sugar are not particularly good for you. I think uh, the thing to remember is uh, sorry I'm going to let you talk but the thing to remember is that the salt the sugar gets converted into something else so you're actually not drinking like with the kefir it's 50 grams of sugar to a liter which is quite a lot in terms of a percentage but that sugar gets eaten by the kefir grains and so there is actually not that much sugar in left in fact some of these drinks kombucha and kefir are slightly alcoholic so i think if so we can't measure the amount of sugar that's left in it no. when when we're making it at home but i have seen on bottles of commercially produced kefir and kombucha that there's minimal sugar it's it's like next mm. to nothing yeah. so it does go to prove that it's actually eating it up mm. now yeah. i don't understand why wine doesn't do that because wine is high in calories whereas these drinks aren't but 
I know myself, if I have sugar in my diet, my body reacts poorly to it. Uh, I I just feel sluggish. My mouth feels a bit strange. There can't be residues of sugar Mm. in this because I'm drinking maybe two glasses of um, kefir a day and I'm not going through what I would if if I was drinking sugary drinks. Mm -hmm. Yep. And with the salt, um, the lactobacillus culture, the bacteria um, feeds on or the the salt is not as much salt as it sounds. Um, So it's not like you're increasing your salt intake greatly by eating uh, fermented foods that are salt-based like the sauerkraut. And I think sometimes we're we're mixing them in with other stuff that we're eating anyway. So it would mean that if we were generally um, garnishing with salt, mm. we wouldn't do it anymore. Yeah, yeah. So for people that are sitting out there thinking, oh, I'm a bit scared about this. I mean, what are some of the issues and concerns, you know, about producing this sort of food? Sauerkraut, for example, when you make it, you will find that you get a buildup on the top of the product. If it's white, that's fine because it's yeast, generally speaking. And so you just take that off and it's it's not a problem. It's not like canning where you have to sterilize everything, particularly. In fact, a book that I've got uh, by Shannon Stonger, who's a, a, a food scientist, I think, or a chemist, she uh, mentions that she doesn't over-sterilize things. I remember we were watching Chef's Table with Christina Tozzi, um, and I think she's also on Deborah Millman's podcast, Design Matters. Uh, she mentioned the same thing when she was being interviewed by Deborah. She tried to replicate her grandmother's cookie recipe, and she never could, even though she got the ingredients <laughs> right down and she got everything exactly the same as her grandmother used to make them. They never quite tasted the same as uh, as her grandmother's and she put that down to the fact that the her nana obviously had some sort of a it was the bacteria or, or the whatever was on her hands that the, was a x-factor ingredient that made her cookies taste so much better than christina tosi's for those who don't know christina tosi she's this incredible pastry chef who's worked for some of the top restaurants in new york uh, as the co-owner of milk bar um, and just if you get to see anything about her in it, just just watch it. She's fabulous. But fermented foods is kind of the same. Uh, and Shannon Stonger says is that she's clean with with her utensils. It's not like canning where you have to be everything has to be absolutely sterile. Clean is good enough because you need the bacteria for in order for the process to work. So if you kill everything, if you kill all of the you sterilize everything and you you kill everything by using antibacterial hand wash or or you know deep cleaning products to clean all your utensils and everything you're actually killing the bacteria good bacteria that you want to perform its function in the food i guess why i'm raising this is because you don't have to be have a super clean kitchen you don't have to have an industrial clean kitchen you can just use what you've got uh, and it's makes it a lot easier than, say, with something where canning where you do need sterilised products because once it's sealed and canned and preserved, you don't want anything in there. Fermentation is a lot more forgiving in terms of the fact that it doesn't have to be so precise. 
know, I think which I other, like. Yeah, I, and I think the other thing is with the fermentation, once it's ready, we're putting it in the fridge anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of halts that process. It, it halts it. It doesn't kill it. It doesn't mm-hmm. stop the process. So when do you have to be careful? So what, I, what I'm saying is that you, you have to be careful with not overkilling the bacteria that's naturally occurring around you. Also, you don't. It, it doesn't require lots and lots of process and procedure to to produce fermented foods. The only things you do have to be careful of is any coloured moulds. So if you if you're trying fermented foods for the first time, if you see mould that's or colours on your product that's kind of blue or orange or pink or green, and if it's not white, then probably do want to err on the side of of caution and and just chuck it you know you're going to lose a few cents worth of maybe a couple of dollars worth of product but it's not worth risking your health for something that's not necessarily good for you but if it's just white mold then that generally means it's it's yeast so that's that's okay but anything colored we had garlic. I thought garlic was going to be the easiest thing in the world to do. And after a couple of days, everything started turning green. I had three goes at garlic and I don't know why. I even sterilized the jars because I thought maybe garlic was a bit sensitive. And I actually baked the, gla- the glass jars for the 20 minutes or so, 400 degrees that it requires. But they just haven't had any success with garlic. Three batches, we had to throw them all away. And onion too. First time we had a go with red onion, that was... It was oh, really good. It was th- the first lot of red onion was brilliant. Yeah, 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 but the second lot was just really weird. So um, common sense prevails. So we just we threw it because it smelled weird and it looked weird, and therefore it was weird. And it was weird. Yeah. <laughs> so we we didn't even risk it. So so I suppose that's that's some of the it is, you do need to be cautious, but but unlike canning and preserving, it's not as uh, it's a little bit more forgiving as long as you're sensible with it. So, is it cost effective? What do you think? Um, is it? Co- I I couldn't tell you. I think it's made eating a lot more fun for us. Mm-hmm. I think I'm certainly eating better for us. It's more cost effective because we're not eating out as much as we mm. used to. So we always seem to have food in the house. Mm. Um, so I think that's really good. I think if people were doing it, if, if people already had a really great diet, were shopping regularly, or always had food in the house, mm. um, and they decided to do this for themselves. No, possibly not. I mean, you, you've said yourself that um, the sauerkraut, it's its so cheap to buy in the supermarkets. Why would you bother doing it yourself? Yeah. But I think there's a sense of accomplishment comes from doing it yourself. Yeah, uh, the sauerkraut, you can buy it for $3, $2.80, you know, less, and a cabbage will cost you four dollars for a kilo. Um, so, Paul, is it cost effective? It yes and no. I think if you were growing your own vegetables, uh, definitely, because you can't. If you want a variation on something, if, if you're growing your own vegetables and you want to, you know, cook your vegetables as normal, and you were looking for something, an alternative, then yeah, definitely. Although it's generally said anything green won't ferment. So peas, beans. Those sorts of things, are, they're not good subjects for fermentation, but certainly cabbages and, and those sorts of things. But if you're buying full price, sourdough is, a, is one. It's, so you haven't talked about sourdough at all? No, no, no. There's a lot of waste with sourdough, I find, with a starter, particularly when you're starting off your starter. I think you. I went through 
well over a kilo of flour with the starter just to get it to a point where it was ready to start working with. And then it's quite a long drawn out process. You have to feed the starter if not every day, then every other day. It's a bit forgiving if you miss a day, but you can't miss more than a day. And then it's quite a long drawn out process making the dough. And then you're looking at an hour in the oven. So by the time you've gone through all that flour, all that effort, and then an hour's worth of baking, you can probably pick up a, uh, a loaf of sourdough for between $4 and and uh, and $7 for an artisan loaf. And you kind of, you do have to question whether it's worth the effort to make your own sourdough. So why yeah. would someone do it? For, for the health benefits, I think. So you know what's going in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're making something and you, you're in complete control of what, ingredients you use and and uh, what flavors you put in there mm-hmm. um, how fresh it is there's, you know, there's certainly certainly that we were making the kefir with just store-bought ginger for the second ferment i found a supplier of organic ginger and turmeric um, and the flavor was much much better it was much nicer you could tell just by using it that it was a much better product than what was available at supermarkets and you're putting so little of that stuff in that you know, whilst it's a little bit more expensive, when I mean, you're really talking about cents per liter, um, yep. So the kefir drinks are definitely worthwhile. The kombucha, if you if you're doing that, yeah, it's definitely worthwhile. Eight tea bags, three quarters of a cup of sugar, and some filtered water. You know, and you've got three liters of 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 kombucha, which you know can cost you what. Five six dollars a bottle in the stores. Yeah, for about for, for, for about a four hundred and fifty yeah. mil yeah. bottle. Yeah, so, yeah. So you're in control of it too. Mm-hmm. You know. So yeah, the, those the drinks definitely. I think I'm not sure about milk kefir because that that ferments as quickly as the water kefir. So every three or four days, you you know you're doing a liter of milk and it's cheaper than yogurt, I guess. But. Yep. And so you can't make milk kefir with water kefir grains. No, they're a different product. Okay. Yeah. Okay. A different thing. I mean, it's fun to do. I I guess that if you're doing it to save money, unless you're growing your own vegetables, I don't think you'd be saving money. So it's more a a food choice. Plus some of these products are just not available Mm -hmm. commercially. There are some people that do water kefir, but you're talking, you know, $5 for a 200 mil, maybe less less than 200 mil bottle. And, uh, you know, that's quite expensive. So, yeah, I definitely recommend... Water, water kefir. I guess, it, uh, yeah. If you if you've got access to cheap vegetables or, or you, you grow it yourself, then yeah, definitely it's worth doing. Well, certainly that first book that I saw was the Sharon Stronger book that you were talking about yeah. before. Now her family lives completely off the grid, yeah. Um, and she's at home growing vegetables and then turning them into food for her family mm. to eat. That's a very different lifestyle to the one yeah. we live. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and most people, I suspect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So some of the um, resources that we've spoken about, uh, some people you might want to check out on YouTube. There's uh, Brothers Green Eats. Mike Greenfield does um, sourdough, kimchi, sauerkraut, and kombucha. There's one or two videos he's got with that sort of thing. They were fantastic in terms of getting you started, very simple explanations about you know what you need and how to make them some good recipes i've got a good stuff from from them uh for bread if you're interested in baking bread um on youtube again bake with jack some of his processes for making sourdough really made a difference to the quality of 
of what I was turning out. Plus, he's he's quite funny, so he's, he's definitely worth checking out. Joshua Weisman as well. He's good on sourdough, how to get your starter working and how to make a starter and, and then how to process your sourdough to uh, to get your bread to rise and stuff. Daddy Cobes Farm for kombucha. Um, they've got some good videos on there. And then for books and websites, uh, Amelia Raffa uh, has a book called Artisan Sourdough Made Simple. That's a really good book. I really recommend that. Uh, I, I think it's about $8 on Kindle, Emily Raffa, R-A-F-F-A. Uh, and the website is thecleverCarrot.com. Carrot? Carrot, yes. Okay. Clever Carrot. So that was the um, fruit and walnut sourdough. Yep. The fruit bread. Uh, that was a really good recipe as well. And then thewholedaily.com.au has the recipe for the fermented cashew cheese. The whole, T-H-E-W-H-O-L-E-D-A-L-Y.com.au. That's a really good recipe. We make that mm-hmm. every other week pretty much. It's uh if you can get cheap cashews and uh, you, know, you can make a kilo of uh, cashew cheese and it's really tasty and a good substitute, a good removal of dairy product from your, from your diet. So just a caveat in closing, if you have any dietary issues, you know, you should probably check with a, a dietitian or a food expert because one man's meat is another man's poison. So we can't guarantee that any of the recipes or anything that, you know, will be good for you. So you need to check to see that you're able to eat and drink some of these things before just barrowing straight into them and it is fun to make it you do feel a bit more in control of the product you're making mm-hmm. you know, but and it's going with anything open. i mean people you can overdo anything yeah 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 yeah, yeah. too start much simple. of a good thing is yeah. going to hurt you yeah for sure and and start with the simple stuff you know try sauerkraut try um kefir is pretty easy but try kombucha you know, try the cashew cheese uh, they're really easy you can do it you can make them with very little equipment so here you go and if you hear a bang in the night it could be <laughs> something going off yeah. <laughs> yeah it could be exploding bottles so uh, anyway hope you've enjoyed this introduction to fermented foods and uh, we'll catch you with the, on the next podcast thanks for joining us see you later bye